listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada, located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. A few weeks back, I preached on the parable of the unforgiving servant. and I pointed out that when Matthew relates a parable that appears in other Gospels, there's often more edge, more reckoning to Matthew's version. Tonight, that's what he has given us, and he's given it in spades. This parable of the wedding banquet has real parallels to a parable that Luke also relates. But in Luke, it's not a king who gives a wedding feast for his son, but just someone who gives a great dinner. What's more, when the people on the guest list in Luke decline their invitation, it's because they think they have better and more pressing things to do. There's none of this blunt hostility that happens in tonight's story on the part of those invited guests where they actually kill the slaves who bring the invitations. And Luke, there's nothing about the host becoming so enraged that he sends in the troops to destroy the murderers and burn their city. It's almost like Matthew's is the action film version of the parable with blazing machine guns and exploding cars. It's it's about as subtle as a movie with Jean-Claude Van Damme or Sylvester Stallone. Now, you could conclude that Matthew has taken the gentler version preserved by Luke. And he's just ramped it up to suit his own theological views. That's one way to approach it. But maybe, like any good teacher... Jesus wasn't shy of telling a story more than once and of shifting around the details to better fit the context into which he was teaching. In Luke, the parable of the banquet is located fairly early in the gospel, and it stands as a, as a, as a true parable of grace that when the, the privileged refuse or defer on the invitation, They go into the streets and they just bring them all in. In Matthew, it's located in the final days before Jesus is arrested. The temperature is rising in his ongoing debates with the scribes and the Pharisees and the high priests and the Levites. It's at this point, in this gospel particularly, that so much is told in these great, big, broad, brush, action film kinds of terms. It's actually after the dust settles that the parable gets really interesting. With the troops dispatched to wreak havoc on the city of that ungrateful bunch, the king then turns to his servants and says, The wedding is ready. But those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, into the main streets and invite everyone you find to the wedding banquet. We've got food. We've got drink. We've got a reason to celebrate. Let's throw the doors open. Bring them all in. And so the parable continues. The slaves went out into the streets and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. They indiscriminately gathered them all. 
the good, the bad, and presumably all of the in-between. Not so good, not so bad, like most of us, in fact. And the feast is underway. Now we've apparently, after the, the sort of the gunfire of the opening section, now we've got a parable of gracious inclusion, right? The king has set aside his plan A with the prestigious guest list, and he's gone to plan B, which has actually been God's plan A all along. And how is that? How is it that the good and the bad together are brought into this new feast? Because, Robert Capon notes, evil is not a problem for the kingdom. It has already been aced out by the power of Jesus' death and resurrection. The only thing that can possibly be a problem for the kingdom is a faithless non-acceptance of God's having solved the problem of evil all by God's self. All you need to do is accept the invitation, come on in, take your seat at the feast. you got to like that. And then there's another curveball. Because Matthew almost inevitably has a little sharpener on the razor as he relates the parables of Jesus. It's just typical. And the story continues in what seems almost an absurd way. But when the king came in to see the guests... And remember, the guests are that bunch pulled in off the streets, described as both good and bad, so presumably including those homeless folks who beg by the gate, the poor widow who doesn't have enough to feed her kids, much less pay for a decent wedding dress. When the king came in, he noticed a man there who was not wearing a wedding robe, and he said to him, Friend? How did you get in here without a wedding robe? Um, I was just sitting on the bench out the corner and your servants came and kind of corralled me into the party with the rest of them. Uh, where was I supposed to get a wedding robe? That's kind of what it would be the logical extension of, of, the, of the question of the way the parable unfolds. Now, some biblical scholars of the or of the opinion that what Matthew's actually done is he's taken two separate, originally separate parables, and he sort of pushed them together because they're thematically linked by the wedding feast. But that's not a necessary move. Jesus was never shy about using a little bit of absurdity and incongruity in his teaching. I'm of the opinion that Jesus was quite happy to rattle the cages of his audience and to leave them having to wrestle down what exactly is at stake here. What is he doing? Is this one man without the wedding garment so poor, the guy at the corner drinking coffee out of a styrofoam cup that he got from the mission house, is he so poor that he couldn't possibly lay his hands on a decent wedding suit? Or... And this, to me, is more likely, given how Jesus actually treated the poor and the outcast. Or is he actually a decently upright person? One of the good ones who has seen all of the misfits streaming into the wedding feast, wearing all manner of mismatched and ragged wedding clothes, 
and who has thought to himself that, well, he will go and have a drink or two. He's not about to risk soiling his good wedding suit with that bunch. It's not that important. So in his comments on the parable, Lance Pace suggests that within the world of the story as told, the problem with this guy is not that he is not taking things seriously enough. No, his problem is his failure to party. Kind of like that. His failure to party. The kingdom of heaven is a banquet after all. And you've got to put on your party dress and get with the program. The kingdom music is playing and it's time to get up on the dance floor. Now if that sounds like a little bit of a stretch to say that this character's issue in the parable is that he comes only half-heartedly to the party, not ready to actually party, hiving off in a quiet spot, sipping his wine in his street clothes, Note that no less a theologian than Karl Barth, hardly a party animal himself, says basically as much. Barth writes, in the last resort, it all boils down to the fact that the invitation is to a feast, and that he who does not obey and come accordingly and therefore festively declines and spurns the invitation no less than those who are unwilling to obey and appear at all. In short, you're all in or you're not. Trust the invitation to dine with the king, to be in relationship with the king, or don't don't bother coming. The fact that the man without the wedding garment remains speechless when the king asks him where his wedding suit is, kind of bears that out. Friend, the king says, that's a good word. Friend, where's your garment? And the man is speechless, says nothing. Not so much as a hint of a request for mercy or a bit of leniency or the opportunity to run down to the store and get a decent shirt and tie any of which would have expressed his desire to actually be in some kind of relationship with the king. Nope, he's speechless. At some level, he still seems to think he knows better. Actually, interesting parallels in this story to the one that we heard from the book of Exodus about the golden calf. In the Exodus story, If you'd ask the average freed Hebrew slave who had led them out of Egypt, they probably would have said Moses. Moses was the visible one. Moses was the one who'd taken them on that unlikely route across the Red Sea, whose prayers had produced apparently the manna in the wilderness. No matter how often Moses had said, no, 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 not me, It's the Lord who's doing this. The Lord you can't see. That's who's doing this. What they saw was Moses. He's the one they complained to, pleaded with, petitioned for help. And when Moses goes up Mount Sinai to be alone in the presence of the holy, they say to his brother Aaron, Come, make gods for us who shall go before us as for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. They can't see him anymore. 
so he's not real. We need something solid. We need something familiar, tangible, just like the gods we used to see in Egypt. For all that had happened to them in their escape from Egypt, they can't quite trust a gift given them by a God they can't see. And so, like the man at the wedding feast, they hedged their bets and they put their faith into something that was, at least in their worldview, easier to trust, serve, and appease. Like them, we can get bogged down with our own golden calves. We can get religiously devoted to all the wrong things and convince ourselves that surely we need to do more than just trust faithfully in God's grace. There must be more to it than that. Or we think that surely those misfits and losers who keep showing up in the story, the gospel story, surely they should have to shape up and clean up before they can keep proper company with us at a duly respectable feast. But no, that's not what the gospel says at all. Come into the feast. Just dress like you're really accepting the invitation. Dress in the mercy that has been shown you. Dress expressing the hospitality which you've been extended. Ready to share in all of the festivities with the rest of the last and the least and the lost and the little. Come expecting a party. Come in that posture. Come in the company of others. Just don't get all speechless. Because in this parable, that kind of sounds like hell. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to a St. Benedict's Table podcast. For more information on our church or to provide support for our online work, visit us at stbenedictstable.ca.